0: Hey everyone, Clay here. Today's episode is a live online recording from this week where we invited listeners from every corner of the globe to come join us to ask questions straight to our hosts right on the podcast about Paul's mini-series, Lifelines versus Deadlines, and we'll get to that in just a second. We had guests jump on camera from their homes and offices, which you'll hear, but some things you won't hear are that we polled the audience live about what we were discussing. There was a conversation in the chat section going the entire time in the background. Listeners were discussing amongst themselves, making connections, and helping one another. It was fantastic to get together and for us to receive you know, live feedback from everyone, but it's not over. The conversation is continuing on LinkedIn and you can still have your say. There's a link in the show notes to the post where we are still gathering feedback and engaging with all of you. And we want you to know that we will be doing more events like this and we want you to know about them in the future when they come up and to not miss those opportunities, to get connected with others and with us. And so the absolute best way to find out about these events in the future and to join our community of friends who are committed and engaged in this decisive decade is to subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out once every two weeks, it's human readable and contains just the absolute best that we have to offer. We are dedicated to continuing the newsletter because we hear regularly that alongside the conversations in the podcast, our newsletter has been essential to those working in all aspects of climate action, business, government, and civil society. We do our best to stay sharp on the issues Tilt the prism in the light of everything going on to reveal the colors that we can take action on and invite you directly to these events happening that we want your involvement in, like the podcast recordings, for instance. So right below this episode on your device is a link to our website, outrageandoptimism.org. You can hit subscribe to the newsletter right there and those invitations and information will be delivered right to you. Thank you for signing up if you haven't already. Okay, on to the episode, Just a heads up that because it is a live recording, there are no redos. And if you remember, like COP27, where Tom had sketchy internet in Sharm El Sheikh and had to actually walk outside the conference center to talk to us, uh, the internet is a little spotty in Bonn at the Bonn Intercessionals to start where Fee joined us from, but we get it worked out early on in the episode and it's smooth sailing from there. As I'm sure you know, internet bandwidth is inequitably distributed among the 150 countries our listeners join us from, but we are out here in the world making the best of it. A quick thank you to everyone who joined us for the live recording. We had a great turnout. Uh, and as you'll hear, one guest joined us from their holiday because, quote unquote, I couldn't miss this. Can't wait to have you take a listen. We look forward to seeing you and hearing from you at the next live recording. So without further ado, here's the episode. So we'll be discussing in depth. Welcome, everybody all right hi everybody are we ready to start
1: thanks clay okay so fellow panelists nice to see you all we're going to kick off now um yes so we're ready to go yes we're just lacking our lady of the paris agreement where is she
2: christiana forget us well any second now and there
3: i'm i'm here i was just trying to figure out all these buttons and things so but i'm here i'm here
1: All right, great stuff. Lovely to see you all. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Clay, and great you'll be here helping us make it work. So, hello, welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivetkarnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I am Paul Dickinson.
2: And I am delighted that in this special live episode, we have my two distinguished co-hosts from the miniseries, Lifelines versus Deadlines. So let me introduce them one by one, starting with you, Mr. Dylan Tanner. You are best known for Influence Map. Can you remind our listeners what is Influence Map and what are you an expert in? Or what's the main thing you're an expert in? Because I know there are many, many different things.
4: Well, thank you, Paul. And thanks for allowing me to be part of this wonderful process, a real learning experience. And I I think it's had a real impact. Influence Map is a nonprofit. We're mission-driven. It's the main global accountability mechanism to hold companies uh, accountable for their influencing of climate policy. So it's directly relevant to the topic of discussion today. And I should say I'm not an expert on that. That goes to our 70 uh, extremely talented and mission-driven individuals around the world who track companies and trade associations and uh, they, they know all about the shenanigans which are going on.
2: You're making me think we should have asked them and not you, but it's great to have you on the show, Dylan. Absolutely great. Now, Fiona Macklin, Fee, uh, you were running the race to zero. Can you tell us about that? And what are you looking at now? And where are you?
5: Hello, everyone. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much. I am in Bonn currently for the internationals.
2: As in a slightly low bandwidth environment.
5: It's already hitting. I'm so, so sorry. I may have to revert to turning off my camera, but great to be here. Um, and I have had the pleasure of managing the Race to Zero campaign with the Climate Champions League, um, but have recently made the decision to actually join um, Tom and Christiana, very excitingly, within Global Optimism to work on um, a few projects that are really to inject positivity and agency into the system. So really delighted to be here and feels particularly appropriate to kick off with this podcast.
2: Welcome to Global Optimism. Thank you. Very One day they'll offer me a job, but I'm still waiting. Anyway, <laughs>
1: Tom. Thanks, Paul. And and huge welcome. Lovely to have you both with us. Now, um, today it's about asking questions and hearing answers from the recent mini-series, Lifelines versus Deadlines, uh, which I loved. So congratulations to the three of you and to the team. So amazing conversations and great um, interviews. Just very quickly before we do, I do think that we need to point out that something really significant has been happening this week in the world of climate change. And that is, we know that people who are unfortunate and suffer with this have been facing bad air quality in different cities all around the world, in Africa and Latin America, in particular in Asia. This week that's happened in New York and we have seen unbelievable photographs of what's been happening and it has raised the issue of climate onto people's minds. Christiana, do you just want to comment on the likelihood that you think that this will create a moment of realization as to what we're facing. That part of North America is literally burning and the wind is taking the impact of that smoke across this enormous city. And people are now thinking about this in a different way. So just before we get into the questions, any comments on that?
3: Well, you know, Tom, I, I wish I could say, okay, this is it. This is going to be the the it, right? And, and this is the event that is really gonna wake people up. But honestly, this is not the first time that New York is being hit with something. And Mm. every time that New York or Miami or, I don't know, San Francisco or... And we always, you know, stand there with our palms uh, together in front of our hearts and go like, okay, we are now praying that this is going to be the big wake-up call. And then it isn't. And then it isn't. In part because... We have normalized this. Yeah. We have witnessed so many extreme weather events, poor air quality, wildfires. We have witnessed so, so many consequences of climate mm-hmm. change that we've just put it into life as it usually is. And this is not normal, but yeah. we have normalized it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, just a tiny one, Tom, I can't resist. Um, Hurricane Sandy, which many of you will remember, um, in... he looks for the year and doesn't find it. A few years ago, (laughs) knocked out half the electricity in Manhattan. Wall Street was without electricity for three days. What are we waiting for? Right,
1: let's get into the subject.
3: 2012, Paul, I just looked at that. 2012.
1: 2012. And actually, if you speak to people like John Marshall, who's coming on the podcast next week, who is a a brilliant uh, individual looking at communications, what he says is that, we have not yet successfully made the link. So people see these things, it it affects us for a moment, but we don't sustain the link between that and really what's going on in the deeper changes in our world. So yes, but, but, but so unfortunate and the pictures have been absolutely striking. So we're going to kick off, and I'm going to jump in and ask the first question, if that's all right. And then we've got a few people online who are going to join us. A little us. unfair well, with people online, but okay, just one. So I loved your miniseries, and I was particularly struck by the comments that all of you made, that disclosure of lobbying practices, of the ways in which corporations are influencing governments is absolutely critical to be disclosed if we're going to make progress. And it just made me wonder about the last 20 years, all of the effort that we've made with all of these NGOs around disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions, around disclosure of climate risk, a range of other things, all very good. But in retrospect, is it more important that instead those companies spend time observing, reflecting on, and disclosing their lobbying practices? Now, of course, it's very easy to say, they should do both. But for the purposes of this exercise, let's assume they can't. Everyone's resources are limited. So if you look at those two activities, measuring and reporting your emissions or being honest about your lobbying and drawing that into the light, which would you three, as co-hosts of that mini-series, rather see companies doing?
4: Maybe hmm. I'll jump in. Yeah. This is where we are now in history. We have lots of information on which sectors are emitting what and um, incremental additional details will help. But there is virtually no information on how companies are influencing policy. So absolutely, I would want to see much more rigorous and consistent disclosure of the type that uh, Senator Whitehouse is proposing as a ticket to get into COP. And, um, and further, I, I, would, I would, well, let me just leave it at that. Uh, uh, sorry. Further, I would say the actual disclosure will make it harder for them to lobby negatively because they they cannot then pr- promote the the uh, the opposite negative policy behind closed doors if it's out in the open.
1: I see. Okay. Fee.
5: I fully really agree with that, Dylan. I also think that we're we're in an age now where AI is becoming so powerful and so influential, and I think we massively need to direct that technical capacity towards helping with this disclosure much more in a much more automated fashion and enabling that lobbying to 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 become centre stage for these. For these companies, um, so I, so I think, uh, in answer to your question, Tom, I'd, I'd really place an emphasis on on the importance of um, transparency in, in lobbying and letting the disclosure of emissions be something that perhaps is is better automated um, and externally driven anyway. Because I think it's mm. important to have a sort of <clears throat> independence in disclosure as well.
2: And let, let me just fin- finish off this, uh, Tom. I, I, in an earlier iteration of this question, bef- before we started recording, you talked about the burden on companies. Yeah. you know, And like it was a real burden to be able to report on this and then to be able to report on that. And I, I want to try and bring into the mix that actually if we want to reduce emissions 7% a year, we're going to need a whole bunch of new policy, regulations, laws, legislation. And therefore... If that's actually designed to help companies that have got technologies that are that are solution products and services is a solution, it shouldn't be seen as a burden. It should be seen as a commercial opportunity. So that would be that would be my take on it. Is like don't think of this as something you don't want to do. Actually, help craft the regulation. So if you look at Tesla, they did incredibly well by getting subsidies to support them, and they became the most valuable car company in the world.
4: Well, Paul, that's exactly what the climate positive companies are doing. They're shouting from the rooftops. We need this but they're getting drowned out by the strategic uh, negative lobbying at the moment. Mm.
1: Um, Christian, I don't know if you want to come in. I, 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 have, yeah.
3: I have a question, actually. If you're, I have an, another question to Go start for it. with. So um, to the three of you, or maybe to Fee and Paul, because I take it the two of you together came up with the title of your miniseries.
2: It was Fee who came up with the title, not me.
3: Oh boy, Fee, now you're in the hot seat. Why did you entitle the series with the little word versus inside there between deadlines and lifelines when we know that we need both and the conclusion from your fantastic discussions is that we need both. But I'm wondering if there is something else in the back of your minds that you were trying to contrast more than the evident need for having both.
2: And if he comes up with a very good answer, I might have been involved in naming it. It kind of depends.
5: Yeah, 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 yeah,
3: yeah. (laughs) I think this is very much collective evidence. No, I think
5: that's, um, I think it's such an important question. And I think fully, fully agree with the absolute need for both. I think similar to the momentum versus perfection, I think both things go hand in hand. However, in my mind, the way that I see climate action at the moment is we are we've we've heard so much about the deadlines and these deadlines come closer and closer and they're critical. And as we know, they're, they're scientific limits. But it, But my sense of how we work psychologically as a species is that deadlines are quite paralyzing. Whereas if we flip the narrative and look at lifelines and positive progress and, and really force ourselves to, to think about the benefits that we can win from acting on climate early and, and sort of induce in a sense of com, com, competition that I think um, is really needed and, and is really valid in the climate action space. I think that will, in my mind, that's an important f- flip in perspective to, to see if we can move forward. So so that was the perhaps the provocation... Because I think it's perhaps a perspective that we've not necessarily tried yet and we need to try different strategies. So, so that was the thinking behind it, Christiana. But, but Paul and, and Tom, I'd be really interested in your perspective as well.
2: Paul, well, um, look, I know I just agree with everything Fee said. I think this idea of humans being frozen like rabbits in the headlight is like a big risk at the moment. You know, all this bad news about climate change is
1: kind of like, oh, can't do anything, forget about it.
2: That doesn't work. We have to empower people to move. Mm.
1: Wonderful. Okay, so in which case, I'm going to incur- uh, invite our first listener to um, put themselves on camera. This is Roger. Uh, Roger, if you want to join us and ask your question, welcome.
2: Roger is here from Imex Group. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm here in the wonderful city of Brighton and Hove on the south coast of England, which I know some of you know very well.
1: Very well. And the internet works in your house. Sorry, it doesn't work in Paul's <laughs> house when he's in Brighton. But anyway, sorry, Carol. <laughs> well in the
2: office at least okay um so yeah i work in meetings and events so like you i know how important it is um to get together and to meet face to face um for to have the best collaboration um at the same time we're getting frustrated with fossil fuel companies saying one thing but then doing keep keep on doing all the bad stuff in the background So my question is, what are the conditions we should set for fossil fuel companies if they want to remain part of the conversation, for example, to take part
0: at COP, but also other events?
1: Good question. Yeah. Who would like to jump in?
0: I just want to flag that Christiana was giving a double thumbs up. So listeners who are listening to this later... (laughs) You can there you go. hopefully hear that. I I
2: think if, I, I, a year ago, there could have been a dispute between Dylan and Christiana. I've got a funny feeling they will now agree. to that. So Why don't you go first, Dylan, and see if Christiana agrees?
4: Great question, Roger. Nice, Nice to meet you. So first off, it's not just the fossil fuel companies. So if you focus on just them, there's others who are active in utilities, steel, automotive, etc. So... In my view, as Senator Whitehouse offered and the investment community is demanding, all companies should produce a thorough disclosure on all of their lobbying, their money flows, their memberships, anything that they use to influence climate policy. And for admission to COP, there should be some kind of benchmark which you must reach to show that you are not negatively influencing. And that's an accountability mechanism that can be agreed upon. But um, the pieces here are in place, and I think There there has been a proposal that's been signed by uh, President Biden to this effect uh, when it comes to, to COP. And so we'd like to see that route pursued, but covering more companies other than just the oil and gas majors.
3: Wait, Dylan, can you unpack that a little bit? A proposal that has been put on the table by President Biden specifically for attendance at the COP?
4: So um, it was generated by Senator Whitehouse's office, who appeared on this wonderful podcast, and his his idea. I think he, he's 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 taken or looked at some of our stuff about carbon policy footprint, which it means is what is your footprint on climate policy? A, a, a statement in which there is now a standard around, so companies would have to release this in the public domain and and have it subject to scrutiny. And uh, he has proposed, and this has been signed by the president of the U.S. and by numerous EU politicians, that this be a uh, a bar for admittance into the talks, a COP. Christiana,
1: what do you think?
3: Well, I'm chewing on that one.
2: Paul. Roger, I think you've got the best question in the world. And... Um, it's 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 absolutely at the heart of this COP, particularly with the COP president being the chief executive of an oil company. It's inconceivable that the COP president is going to kind of think the oil company shouldn't attend, or because the COP president would stop themselves from attending, uh, unless they happen to have fully embodied the role of COP president, which is not the same as the role that they. Currently, simultaneously, have of being a chief executive of an oil company. For me personally, I think it's about some recognition of past wrongs. I personally would like to see some kind of acknowledgement from oil and gas companies that that predecessors in the company have behaved irresponsibly, but the company is coming afresh and looking in a new direction. Plus the disclosures that Dylan recommends. But Christiana, do you, do you, does this make sense?
3: Well, Paul, you know that that's not going to happen because that opens them up for uh, for huge legal liabilities. That there's just no way that they're going to open that gate to. So that just, I mean, yes, it's uh, it would be nice, but uh, their lawyers won't let them let them do that. Um, But I'm I'm really interested in fees' answer to this because I'm I'm also of two different opinions about it. I can see. The logic, the crisp, clear logic of, uh, of having companies, in fact, even countries, come to the COP because they are contributing in a positive way to the path of decarbonization that we have to follow. Yes. And we know that unless the entire global economy decarbonizes, we're not going to get there. And so it doesn't seem very realistic. Although it is very frustrating, it doesn't seem realistic to choose who you play with, or to choose who you write policy with. Um, you know, if if I just I, if I only take the, my good friends and the members of the family that I really like to my meetings, well, then we will just support each other and come out with nothing that is different to what we went in with to begin with. I think that having differences of opinion is um, precisely where you open up the, not just the possibility, but the need to find common space. And that is what a negotiation is about. A negotiation is not about uh, bringing only like-minded people together. That's not a negotiation. That's a whatever a, a, a collusion now there's a real collusion there's collusion. a positive collusion, collusion. party <laughs> fee's got a point and
2: then i do want to come in on this point but fee how, see if you can if we can hear you now
5: goodness i'm so sorry um i hope that is a little bit um clearer i'll, I'll persevere it is much party. better much better okay, fantastic um apologies i think i fully fully agree and i and, and what i'm in two minds about is um yeah, that is, I think, specifically the question of, of bringing these entities to the table. I think the first is being so watertight on the definitions around this issue. I think we need to be very clear on what we mean by phase out, and that includes emissions. I think we need to be really clear on what we mean by unabated and making sure that all these concepts are that we are discussing are very clear and transparent. And I think based on that, any fossil fuel company who wants to play um, and wants to come to the table needs to come with a very clear and transparent, viable plan for how they're going to phase down and out. And that that includes answering the question, what are they going to become? Because we know they can't viably remain an oil and gas company. So they need to be really clear about their vision for um, a, a re- reincarnation. And thirdly, I think they need to bring to the table the policies and the laws that they know will help get them there. Um, and I think that's still a question that's missing. And they're very, very powerful at lobbying for other things. So I think they can use that lobbying force in a positive sense if
2: they do want to come.
1: Thanks so much, Fee. And that was almost perfect in terms of sound. We lost you a little bit almost, towards the end. Almost, yeah.
2: not quite. Um, one one cool. last thing I, I wanted to share is, you know, the idea, you know, to some degree, yes, we need, so to say, the the parties at the table, But there is a World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. There are UN conventions on tobacco control that stipulate that tobacco companies cannot lobby policymakers. I mean, why would we expect the the tobacco industry to get rid of tobacco? Why would we expect the asbestos industry to get rid of asbestos? It's something, I think it says something about the times we live in that we sort of um, acknowledge that great powerful industries have equal power to government. And we have to sort of somehow allow these powerful industries to sort of come along to the government meetings or else we'll all, you know, the, the, we won't be able to pull it off. We ought to recognize that theoretically, you know, the government have got. The army and the police and the prisons and they can enforce laws. Fee wants to come back in.
5: But, and I went not drop. but um, Paul, I, I think I really agree. What I would say is different between the tobacco industry is that they didn't necessarily have um, a better path or a better journey to go on. We, we know what can be positive that can come out of oil and gas companies and the, and the positive future that they can envisage that they're just not bothering to envisage. So I do think there's an element of difference there and that it is their responsibility to call on the regulations that will benefit their new trajectory.
4: Yeah, and if I could just come in on what Christiana, I don't think the intent is to ban people who have differences of opinion. It's to call out those who are doing one thing and saying another. This disconnect, and they're doing negative shenanigans behind the scenes at home and elsewhere, and coming to cop saying we're part of the solution. So, I think that's the intent of this—to to, to call out this uh, hypocrisy.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Zoe, to those who are only listening, Zoe, uh, Tom's daughter peeked in there because she was so interested in your answer, Dylan. How's that?
4: Exactly. Um, Exactly. I'll take it. I'll take it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I think that's a very important differentiation. Um, and also to agree with, with fee it's, um, you know, tobacco companies are basically have a yes or no future. Either you sell tobacco or you don't, uh, Oil and gas is not that black and white. It's not either you sell fossil fuels or you disappear. For heaven's sakes, we are going to be using energy forever as long as we humans are here. So it's not that we can do without companies that are producing energy. It's that we need companies that produce clean energy and they have that option. So, so it, so it is. Maybe that's the answer,
2: Christiana. Maybe energy companies can come to the COP, but fossil fuel companies can't. And they
1: have to decide what they are before they walk in. So we're going to have to move on in a second. It's a really interesting conversation. Interestingly, I don't know if everyone just saw the poll that came up. 62% of participants on this call said oil and gas companies are an essential part of the future of COPs, which is not what I would have expected people would have responded. Um, It's going to be such an interesting debate. And of course, the COP being in Dubai this year, this is more live than it's ever been. So interesting to hear the different perspectives. Are we all right to move on? Anything burning anyone wants to say? Yeah, thank you for the brilliant question.
2: Thank you, Roger, for a brilliant question that's got people going.
3: Yeah, thanks,
2: Appreciate Roger. Uh, seagulls, as they say, I don't
1: really follow the team, but yes.
2: Bye, Roger. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy
4: Bryson.
1: Julia, are you there? Julia Jones, love to have you come on. Hey. Julia, Welcome.
6: Hi everyone, hopefully you can hear me okay. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So my question I think is quite closely linked to a few points that have been raised, which is which is great. In episode one, the very deliberate and effective campaign by the fossil fuel industry to block any and all policy around climate change was discussed. And I was really struck by this idea that those who stand to lose the most from divestment from fossil fuels are very clear that this is the single most important thing they can do to ensure their survival. And they're spending billions to prove it. And the question was raised on the episode about whether the climate movement, by attempting to tackle the issue of of climate change across so many different areas, is trying to do too much. I feel as though the fossil fuel industry has provided us with a little bit of a a cheat code or a blueprint for what they know to be the thing that will fundamentally make the difference between us succeeding or failing to meet the Paris 1.5 degree target. Should we not take this as an indication that we, the climate movement, should be equally laser focused on one thing, preventing this flow of money and therefore the influence on politicians across the world, which is preventing bipartisan and unilateral policy on climate change, policy we have and that exists? In other words, should we be blocking the blockers? And if we agree that we should, what does that look like in practice?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Fantastic. Love
4: that. Great question. And and I think Dylan was
2: born to answer
1: that question (laughs) Phil, at any
2: rate.
4: No, I I totally agree with you. And and we've been clamoring for campaign groups to address this issue, at least with equal um, resources that you address finance or consumer behavior and other things, because we see so many companies, so many institutions getting off scot-free because of a focus on other areas. So we'd love to see campaigns for example, highlighting the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its uh, squeaky clean members in the tech and other industries and the damage they're doing to climate policy as as a mainstream campaign theme. You know, there's and, and I should say there's already a big effort by investors to address this issue. Politicians are working on it, you know, but um, we, we'd love to see the, the campaign, the climate community, as you call it, really address this full on as one of their top one or two or one or two issues. Fantastic. Fee.
5: Julia, I think that's such a fun, fantastic question and, and a couple of thoughts. it. One is that I, I also would highlight it's not it's not um, scarily not just the oil and gas industry, but also um, it's so politicized now as a debate. We're seeing um, an, a, a topic that was very close to my heart when I was managing the race to zero was um, Republican attorneys general in the US threatening that collaborating on climate is illegal. They were trying to prevent banks and, and finance industries and, and others um, to, to collectively work um, on climate climate action because they thought that um, infringed antitrust um, laws. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely crazy. And I and I fully agree that it feels like we are, as a climate community, increasingly divided in a time when we need to be um, most united. And, and um, Tom and Christiana, I know we've, we've spoken about this, and I think it's really interesting to try and understand how we collectively unite around sort of coordinates of possibility that give us a sense of unity, um, despite perhaps divergence um, in terms of how we think climate action needs to be approached but at least unity in in what we know we're fighting against and that that I think needs to give us strength at a really important time to rebut those threats and and move forwards together
2: and can i just throw in one additional concept here i um, mean it's like you know the way you phrase the question do we have to stop the negative lobbying money i mean i absolutely agree we should and uh, i remember we, you know actually one of the the listener comments uh, picked out this thing where uh, we were talking in the first episode, Dylan, about like, isn't it really just about finding a carbon price? And if we had a carbon price, then everything would, all the money would just flow in the right direction and we wouldn't have to worry about redesigning the financial system or whatever.
4: Absolutely, yeah.
2: But I but I also wonder if there is another thing to focus on. And, and I've been getting more and more excited by this idea of, of green as greedy, like the degree to which ambitious companies should be pushing to, to put money into getting laws that will reduce emissions and make them money. And I said this to a friend of mine and they said, well, that's just what the oil industry does. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but what if what if we were doing what the, what the fossil fuel lobbyists were doing, but we were doing it to try and achieve emissions reductions at 7% a year? On the one hand, you know, we really want to try and cut their negative lobbying, which threatens, you know, Vulnerable people and children across the world, but should we be encouraging that positive lobbying? Even big brands using their capabilities, their media, their, their products—you know, the six hundred billion that's spent on advertising every year—could that help build a consensus in society? So, just trying to cut off the negative, but also encourage the positive. That was that was a question.
4: Yeah, no, that's a great strategy. I think the issue there is that they're more fragmented. And it's less of a priority at the moment for these uh, multiple different industries who may benefit in the future from low carbon. And uh, it's very asymmetric. As we discussed, and as, as Senator Whitehouse um, stressed over and over, the oil and gas industry is not only, ha- not only has unlimited money, but they have the focus and they have 30 years, 40 years of experience doing this and they excel at controlling governments. So you're up against an awesome force.
2: Yeah. What do you make of the the poll there, Tom? And actually, I'm interested in what you think about it, if if I can be so bold.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, just just from my own experience, I mean, particularly when we were we were trying to get the world focused on on the agreement in Paris, the 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 clarity of purpose uh, that comes from everybody having an objective and a timeline, and you had you were either on the right or the wrong side of history at that moment on the 12th of December when the gavel comes down. Which side did you want to be on? And that provided such a sense of like. Engagement and possibility, and everybody was trying to focus on that one thing, and that provided this real sense of possibility. What's challenging now, of course, is that now we've moved into the implementation phase. Is millions and millions of things need to happen well together in different ways, and once you have that level of complexity and nuance in an entire system, it's not so possible to focus on the big political outcomes. But what your very good question hopefully points us to is actually sometimes the climate movement is guilty of trying to prioritise its own thing. And if we could collectively say, this year we're going to do a couple of things, we're going to do them really well, that's what the COP should really be in my mind at the moment. It's okay, we can't do everything, but this year we're going to give a big push to EVs and we're going to end fossil fuel subsidies. That would be huge. Next year we're going to do nature restoration and food systems. And if we could collectively come together and think, well, all players... Have a stake in that. We're not quite so sort of obsessed on if every company doing everything perfectly, but we're more focused on how can everyone have a role in delivering these big outcomes at particular times. That gives us focus. It gives us a time frame. It gives us collaboration, and I think that would help us move forward.
4: No, I, I love that. Yes, and stigmatise large trade groups like Business Europe and a chamber who don't agree with with that agenda. Right. Right. So Tom. Yeah.
3: Can I give um level of complexity to that example that you just <laughs> gave? Because the Paris Agreement can now, post-factum, be seen as something that was sort of black and white. You either agree or you don't agree. But the fact is, we had 67 issues under negotiation yeah. being negotiated in five parallel tracks at the same time. And every single one of those 67 issues had tentacles into other issues in other tracks, et cetera, et cetera. So it was not as crisp and clear as simply, well, are you going to vote yes or no? Um, And every single country, let alone every single stakeholder, was very attached to a particular subset of those 67 issues. Um, And every time we moved an issue in one track, it moved the pieces of the chess game in the other track, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we can do that. That's Mm. my point. We should not put ourselves in the box of saying, we humans are incapable of complexity. Mm. Really? If we believe that, then we can't even live through a single day in our lives. Just think of the many different issues, the many different relationships, and the many different processes that we all participate in during one day that seem to be disconnected from each other, but we are the connecting point. So they're not disconnected from each other. So rather than simplify, for me, the invitation and the challenge here is let's embrace complexity. Because life is not going to get any more simple. As we move in to deeper and deeper into the 21st century, we're not going to get more simple. We're just going to get more complex and more intertwined and more interwoven. Thank heavens. Let us embrace complexity and let us understand that because everything is connected one with the other, then pushing on nature-based solutions also helps on the other side with EVs. And there are people whose passion is nature-based solutions, who don't give a damn about EVs and the other way around, thank heavens. Thank heavens that we have that complexity within each of us and certainly across the movement. So I would not be scared about complexity. I would embrace it.
1: So that's, I think that's fantastic, Christiana. It's good to, to remind us of the complexity of that moment around the Paris Agreement. And absolutely. And all of those negotiation tracks were in the shadow of the big moment that was to come, right? So we knew the big moment was to come. So I what I love about the question is, yes, we need to embrace complexity, but the way you make sense of that is with sprints to outcomes, right? That you have to also drive sprints to outcomes so that you can the way collaboration happens is when you get a sense of momentum and an outcome and then everybody pulls together towards that outcome so I think it's a it's a great reminder and a really good question. Thank you, Julia. Uh where are you joining us from by the way?
6: So I'm dialed in from Dubrovnik in Croatia. Ah
1: amazing. I'm
6: actually on holiday.
1: Oh wow <laughs> I well, know
6: you live in the eight. UK but I couldn't miss this.
1: <laughs> Enjoy your holiday.
2: Nice. Better bandwidth Super. than the UNF in Bonn though. So well done Croatia. <laughs>
1: Now, Steve Boyd. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Where are you joining us from, if you can already speak, but while Clay turns your camera on?
7: I'm uh, joining you from Seattle, Washington, which Uh is uh, where some of you were recently here for a retreat, as I understand it. Um, That's right. A little
1: bit north of you, yeah. uh,
7: Yeah, out on Cortez Island. Uh, uh, I'm part of a group out of Harvard University trying to think about how we accelerate climate change and strategies for doing that. Amazing. Um, um, What I loved, Paul and Dylan and Fee, in your uh, series of the last couple of weeks is this question, and and it's back to Julia's question, is um, if you have a dozen strategies arrayed pushing for climate change and then a major factor of resistance coming from the corporate community how do you think about that and there's actually a theory around change that says that and i'll use a northwest uh, american example which is a log jam um there there's this idea that in a log jam there's a king log and at some point to get the log jam unfrozen you've got to go in to the jam and pull out the king log and that that's what starts everything flowing. And to Fiona's point and to Dylan's point, um, that may be a metaphor that might be useful to think about um, that the hindering force is the language, driving forces and hindering forces. uh, That's what's uh, really critical at this point is trying to identify the hindering forces and then go after those hindering forces um, with real vehemence, with real intention, with real focus, it doesn't. Yeah. Mean, it doesn't mean you give up on the driving forces. You want to be encouraging with all those driving forces. But to, the question I put into the uh, into the chat, um, as well as into the question and answer, um, was really uh, a question related to, um, um, you know, where we are in terms of understanding resistance to change. And one of the things is that is uh, obviously institutionally and systemically, the oil and gas companies are focused on creating resistance. Uh, They use the carbon, personal carbon footprint to uh, obfuscate the issue of kind of who is responsible for uh, the condition we're in right now, focusing it back on the individual. So the idea Again, in this conversation, just learning about this carbon policy footprint. I mean, now that's a pretty radical idea because that's actually taking the system on uh, at, at a very high level um, mm. and and creating an openness around that. And Dylan, I would really encourage your organization to to think about that. But my question was really, um, uh, you know, to to think about in what ways our collective theory of change takes on the core hindrance which is actually um people don't resist change what they resist is loss or the perception of loss
1: i think that's such a good point steve i really do like they resist the perception of loss and um and and as a result of that, how do we help move beyond those hindrances? I think, I think that's fantastic. Can I encourage anyone, Dylan or Paul, you want to hop I'm in? I'm going
2: to start off, if I may, and, and thank yeah. you, Steve, for the King Log idea, because I think that, that, you know, it is in what Churchill called the crux of the whole war. Like, what is the thing that is the thing that is the thing? And, of exactly. course, it's lots of things, but, um, you know, I was kind of a little bit chilled when, um, when Senator Whitehouse spoke about the... Um, you know, the catastrophic impact of Citizens United, and I knew very well what Citizens United was, but I asked him to repeat it uh, so our listeners could get a a second uh, look at it. A 2010 ruling by the US Supreme Court that released um, the private sector in the USA, wealthy individuals, wealthy corporations, wealthy investors, released them from any limitation whatsoever on political spending and any supervision. And I recall particularly what Senator Whitehouse said that when he came into the Senate in 2007, you had John McCain running on a climate change ticket, you know, as a, as a Republican presidential candidate. Um, you had multiple bipartisan bills in the Senate and in the Congress looking at uh, uh, carbon tax. Uh, uh, in 2014, I remember um, John Kerry spoke about that at a CDP launch event. In fact, he said he had the votes even from, from the, the fossil fuel industry, but he said coal went on television and started scaring Americans, uh, mm. United States, I should say. And the point of my story is just, you know, it's this money, I think, that that if we if we want to try and cure the patient, that's the, the kind of lump we got to cut out. But Dylan will probably have a more nuanced answer.
4: So I, I agree. They 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 don't fear change, they fear loss. And um the the big oil majors have gone through many years of this analysis. And remember beyond petroleum, BP rebranded itself, went into solar. And that went down. They they just they've they've figured out that it's much more profitable to lobby to block climate legislation than it is to engage in a shift to clean energy. Their margins on oil and gas when they can control a system are massive, and and the current bumper profits have reminded them of that. And that's one reason they backtracked on recent climate commitments. So I don't think it's a lack of information on the opportunities that await them. It's just that their short-term Business opportunities by holding back—you know this is very short-term thinking by individuals in the in the organizations who who who, who want that agenda. Yeah, uh, Fee, you want to hop in on that one?
5: Yeah, just really quickly to say, and I fully agree with that. And I think I think the the sort of opposition, as it were, has this fear of loss. And I think that's where we can come in with our hunger to win. And, and I think it's about the sort of collaborative competition that's needed. And I, I don't think we should forget the aspect of competition because there's so much to win in this. And I think um it's easy potentially to be distracted by the other side lobbying threats at us, but but we have such clarity on what we we want to win as a climate community that I think that that's important to drive that sense of collaboration yes but also competition to to get us to a better world
1: amazing um thank you and steve thank you so much for the question really appreciate you dialing in and joining us um thanks for joining us um so friends we only have a couple of minutes left and um i'm really sorry as ever we didn't get to all of the questions if any panelists um have the q a open please do feel free to go in and type some answers there's lots of really good stuff there and we'll maybe answer some of them in the show notes of this week's episode as well um But uh, as we just have a couple more minutes with Dylan and Fee as co-hosts of this podcast and the amazing expertise and insight that you have brought to Outrage and Optimism, for which we're very grateful, I'd love to just ask you um, a closing question, if I may. Uh, And that is, you have brought such deep expertise in different ways on the ways in which companies are and aren't helping us face this issue. Uh, You've dug into it together with Paul uh, in great depth. And now, as you leave and after this conversation, what are you outraged by and what makes you feel optimistic as you look at this issue? Unless, Paul, you want to add any nuance to that question before your brilliant co host answers.
2: No, 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 no. I I shall, I'd like to answer myself.
3: giving them the same medicine. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. This is called turn the tables. (laughs) Go for it.
4: Dylan, you're first. Okay. so my organization, Influence Map, tracks hundreds of data points each day on hundreds of companies and trade groups and comes out with outrageous incidences of negative lobbying on, on a daily basis. So that's what I'm outraged about. Continuous negative opposition to, to the climate policy that the scientists say we need. Um, I'm optimistic about the sprinklings of positivity from the corporate sector, but mostly the fact that you are doing this uh, podcast and it got huge uh, feedback, as far as I'm aware, as, as being one of the best you've done. And it's I hope it triggers seeds of uh, embryonic seeds that this is something the global climate campaign community, amongst others, can take and run with and really fight back.
1: Hmm. Love that. Saying that the podcast is a reason for optimism gets very high. Mark, Dylan, so well done. And you clearly (laughs) read the briefings. It's very good. Uh, Fee? fee.
4: Well, I was supposed to say that, but I I got that right. You got the memo, exactly.
5: Um, I'm I'm actually, I've been thinking back to the start of our conversation. And I I think um, in particular today, I'm I'm really outraged by the normalisation of abnormality. And I think the 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 smoke and the wildfires that we're seeing in, in New York are really reminiscent of when I was living in, in Melbourne during the 2019 bushfires. And they are horrendously petrifying um to live through. And I, I cannot understand why we treat them as um not something to sort of drop drop all our tools with and start working. So that's that's outraging. Um me today and, and this week, but I'm also um, very optimistic about the potential for the speed and and scale of change that is underway, um, and I think that is going to be a big lifeline for us in the run up to COP28 and moving forwards to to hold on to and really double down on.
2: Hmm. Okay. Well, Amazing. I'm I'm going to grab this this opportunity to answer the the famous question very briefly. Um, picking up on our our last um week's episode. Um, I'm outraged by uh, the uh, states' attorneys general, the 23 of them, who complained about insurance companies collaborating on climate change, uh, using a format that looks like it was pushed on them by fossil fuel interests. I, I think that kind of behaviour is is just the worst in the world. Abusing, you know, democratic pol- offices, the very important legal offices, to try and achieve an outcome that deranges. Um, very important organizations, big insurance companies who understand climate change. Absolutely outrageous. What gives me optimism, and when this show is broadcast, um, it will uh, it will be the music that we end the show with. Um, and I'm just going to sort of try not to kind of lose my um, uh, S apostrophe, apostrophe, apostrophe whilst I talk about this. But the exact reverse of that behavior uh, by those attorneys general is the behavior of, well, behavior the absolute celebration of the human spirit that we see uh, and clay will indeed put the magnificent film in the show notes if there's any human on the planet who hasn't seen it yet as canada suffers with these horrific wildfires 200 more than 200 firefighters come from south africa and arrive in edmonton airport in canada and celebrate the mission and the work that they do Uh, in song and it is the it is the sound of humanity coming together and it's absolutely if it doesn't you know touch your heart very very deeply you haven't got one so um to conclude this episode if you're wondering what you're hearing you're hearing an airport an airport in canada where more than 200 firefighters have arrived from south africa and and try and feel that and that gives me more than optimism it gives me hope and it gives me a sort of fundamental belief that we are we are one people one life we will come together and we will fix this
1: love that paul thank you so much um and i can't echo that enough click on the link it's in the it's in the chat here and you can have a look at that Right. Um, thanks, everyone. This has been a real pleasure. Always enjoy this, Paul. Oh, my big, big thank you to
2: uh, my dear friends, Dylan and Fee, um, for bringing such expertise, such absolutely brilliant guests to this uh, podcast. Also to the unseen, very hard work of Catherine, Sarah, Clay and many, many other people to put it together. But no, Fee and, and, and Dylan, thank you so, so much.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Right, right back at you.
1: <laughs> to be continued. Thanks,
0: everyone.
1: Thanks, everyone. Clay, back over to you. Thanks for joining
0: us. See you next
1: time. See you next week.
0: Thanks, everybody, for joining. Um, Before you leave... All right, everyone, it's Clay again. Thank you so much for listening this week. And here's the audio that Paul mentioned to play us out. See you next week.